Hello, and welcome back to SciSection. I'm your journalist, Amy Stewart, for the SciSection radio show, broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We're here today with Dr. Joe Schwartz, director of McGill's Office of Science and Society, acclaimed author, and expert debunker of pseudoscience. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Schwartz. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so I think to get started, how about you give us a little history of your education and your career so that our viewers can get to know you a little bit? Okay. Uh, well, my uh, PhD is in chemistry, and um, I kind of look at chemistry as the thread that ties all the sciences together. Uh, because if you have an idea about what molecules are all about and how they can react, you have a pretty good idea about how things in the world can happen. So from chemistry, you can really you know, spread out into virtually any kind of science. And uh, that really is, is what I do. I mean, I've been interested in, uh, in science uh, since I was in grade six, which is a couple of years ago. And um, it, it's kind of an interesting story that I, I like to tell, especially to, to students, how it all started, because it was in such an unusual fashion. <clears throat> it happened when uh, I was invited to a birthday party and uh, my friend's parents had hired a magician to entertain us. And he was a teenager, uh, not particularly good. Most of the tricks he did, I've long forgotten. But there's one that he did, which uh, was not only memorable, but actually turned out to be life-changing because um, he showed us three ropes and uh, he said that he was um, going to defy nature and blend these three ropes into one, but he needed a magic invisible chemical to do this. So he reached into his pocket for this invisible chemical that he sprinkled under three ropes and then magically it turned into one long rope. Now, I, I was pretty intrigued by that. Uh, obviously, even at that uh, rather young age, I knew that there was no invisible chemical that could do this. Uh, so I began to wonder not about how he, he did that, but about why he used that language. Why say invisible chemical? instead of hocus-pocus or alakazam or abracadabra, which are the usual magic words. So I went to the school library and I took out a book on chemistry and I took out a book on magic. And I followed both of those ever since. And it, it might seem that this is a very strange pair of bedfellows, right? Because chemistry is a hard science firmly rooted in the laws of nature. And magic uh, as a performance art it's quite the opposite, because what does a magician on the stage do? They, they do things that seem to defy the laws of nature, right? Levitate things into the air, make something disappear and reappear, all of which, you know, defies scientific explanation. And of course, uh, when I started to look into that, I saw that, well, of course, it only appeared to defy scientific explanation. And there was a perfect good explanation. When a lady was made to lie down on a bed and rose into the air, there was a scientific contraption that was involved in this. It was not a question of defying gravity, right? And then I started to see that, that mostly to the uninitiated, science can look magical too, because you pour two solutions together, you get a color change. Unless you know something about indicators or clock reactions, uh, it seems inexplicable. It seems magical. 
the difference is that in science, of course, we try to take out the magic and provide the explanation. Whereas a magician, of course, always wants to hide the explanation to increase the entertainment value. So I, uh, I saw that there was a way to get people excited about science by weaving in a little magic. That's, that's how it all started. And um, then uh, when um, uh, I started to read more about chemistry, you know, even you know, at a young age, I saw the fascinating connections that it had to everyday life that no matter what we were looking at, whether it was food or, or medicine or, or, or cosmetics or, or pollution, the thread that tied all of these together was, was chemistry. So I knew that this is what I wanted to go into in, in university, and I did. And uh, while the teaching uh, was very, very good, I was somewhat disappointed because I had been reading uh, on my own all of these interesting things, but they didn't appear in any of the courses that I was taking. You know, I mean, I was taking FISCAM and quantum mechanics and all of this, which, which you know, were kind of interesting in and of it's themselves. And of course, I learned how to perform well in those. I mean, you, you know, you learn how to do it. You learn how to apply the equation. But what bugged me was I didn't see any connections being made to, to anything. I mean, I, I didn't see why learning the Nernst equation in, in physical chemistry was going to be of any use. Until the end of that FISCHEM course, when uh, out of the blue, the prof who had been teaching us the whole semester just mentions about something about batteries and the Nernst equation. And all of a sudden, you know, things plopped into place. That's the reason that we're learning all of this because it had a role to play, you know? And he had, if he had just said at the beginning of the course that this has application, we're gonna learn about how batteries work, it would have made all of the uh, difference. So um, that's when I decided that if I ever had the chance to go into academia, I would make sure that uh, the students understood why they were learning what they were learning. And while, uh, it isn't always the case that, that there's an immediate application to everything, but you have to show them that there's light at the end of the tunnel. When you're carrying out a chemical synthesis, it's not just to memorize something, but understand why this is important and what potential it has. <clears throat> so I started to infuse into my uh, Gen Chem lecture, lectures, you know, what I thought were interesting things. And uh, students found them interesting. And then uh, I you know, heard that they would go home and discuss these things around the dinner table. And I started to get invitations from parents groups to speak to them. And you know, it started to roll on from, from there. And then uh, I started to teach uh, courses uh, here at McGill specifically on food and drugs and cosmetics and talk about some of the pseudoscience that is in there. And started to separate central nonsense. And, and then uh, 23 years ago, the university said, well, let's do this on a more formal basis and created the uh, Office for Science and Society, which I, I, I direct. And uh, our mandate is really to demystify science and to separate central nonsense. And as you can imagine, these days, that's quite challenging, uh, you know, especially over the last two years. Uh, where COVID has not only infected us with the virus, it has also infected us with a tremendous amount of uh, pseudoscience and, 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 and nonsense. 
So um, that's kind of where you know we stand. That's been the history of uh, of my career, and along the way, I had lots of invitations to speak. Uh, and uh, 42 years ago, was asked to do a radio show, which I'm still doing, which is the longest radio show on chemistry in the history of the world. Probably the only show on chemistry in the history of the world. <laughs> and uh, I've uh, worked on Discovery Channel for 20 years. And uh, so I, I kind of specialized in interpreting science for the public and, and separating myths from fact. That is quite the exceptional life and career you've led so far. Um, just from like your moment of inspiration with a magic trick, I think that's so kind, I, of, I, kind of I, rare. I like to tell that story because it shows that you never know the twists and turns your life is going to make. And uh, just how one little escapade like that had such a long lasting uh, effect. I yeah. wish I, I knew where that guy, that teenager, <laughs> And was these days because I, you know, I'd, I'd like to speak with him and maybe even thank him for, <laughs> you know, stimulating what has become a, a rather interesting and productive career. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you ha uh, highlight such like a, an important point is that there's such like a, a disconnect between all the amazing science that is done, especially in the, the pure sciences like chemistry and physics, and then you know, like general society. And I think that's what causes a lot of the misinformation is like, there's no one there to bridge all of this data and information that's being generated and to like connect the two. Like I definitely saw a lot of that in like the beginning of my undergrad where uh, I never really understood the purpose of anything. Like, like you said, I could learn how to do it and I could like apply it on tests and exams, but I didn't really know why I was doing it. Right. And it makes all the difference when you know the why, not only the what, but, but the why. Because the, the purpose of, of science is to serve the public. I mean, that's why we do things, you know. Uh, it's not just out of intellectual curiosity. It is because it's applicable. And, you know, we know the important role that nutrition plays in our life, that medicine plays in our life, uh, the concerns about pollutions and toxins in the in, environment. And in order to understand uh, these concepts and to know how to handle them, and more importantly, to know what is important and what not, what is worth worrying about and what is, is not. Well, the way that you learn all these things is through scientific education. It doesn't mean that, that everyone in the world has to be a scientist. I mean, obviously not. That's not going to happen. But the same way that you, you strive to become uh, literate, you know, and then being able to read and, and, and write. One should also strive to become literate in science. Uh, it's just part of, of our culture. It's part of what we should know about, you know, and you can in fact appreciate science and even become quite knowledgeable in it without, uh, knowing all the underlying pinnings, you know, I mean, you don't have to know how to solve quantum mechanical equations in order to understand how fluorescent lights work and, and you know, what consequence that, that might be. It's enough to know that someone else knows all of that and they know how to use that to develop uh, useful substances for, for our life. But I think everyone needs to appreciate the value of science and also 
how we in the scientific world know what we know. You know, why should someone who listens to me about the, the folly of detox, about, you know, uh, using coffee enemas to ward off cancer or, you know, some ridiculous thing, why should they believe me? Or why should they believe me when, when I would say that, that you don't have to worry about the calcium propionate that is used as a preservative in your bread? And that's where it becomes so important to describe how science functions, how in the scientific world we know what we know. It all comes down to the scientific peer-reviewed literature. That's how we disseminate information. Researchers carry out studies. It's useless unless others find out about what they've done. So communication is critical. So you write it up, you submit it to a journal, the journal sends it out to reviewers, the referees, and eventually there's a lot of back and forth as you know, and it gets published or it gets rejected. It becomes part of the scientific domain. But we never set store by any one study. It's a question of consensus. And you have to be familiar with the scientific literature in order to see where there's consensus and where there's not about scientific uh, issues. But it's important for people to understand why something that appears in the period literature is more reliable than an article that you might read in the National Enquirer or indeed even in Discover Magazine. Peer review is, is the essence really of science. But it is not to suggest that um, it is beyond criticism because peer review is done by people and people are, you know, uh, imperfect, let us say, in many different ways. I mean, scientific research can be wrong because of honest mistakes. You know, people make mistakes in measurements, etc. That can happen. But unfortunately, fraud also sometimes rears its ugly head. And this can make its way into the scientific literature. And the classic example is that horrific paper by Andrew Wakefield, uh, who suggested the link between autism and vaccination. And that was published in The Lancet, which is one of the world's top peer-reviewed medical journals. <clears throat> How does something like that happen? Well, uh, the reviewers of an article, of course, cannot redo the research. <laughs> you know, when, when you get a paper to review, this is usually work done by several scientists over years that you're asked to evaluate. And you have to uh, expect that everything that you see written down is exactly what they did and that the results were arrived at in, in a proper on a scientific fashion. I mean, maybe mistakes can happen, but, but you don't want fraud. But you're not going to pick that up. If someone is going to submit fraudulent results, a reviewer is not going to pick that up because, you know, he, I mean, you work on the basis that this was all honest work. But if it isn't, it might only emerge years and years later when someone, for some reason, tries to duplicate that, that work and can't. And that's exactly what happened in the case of the vaccine and autism supposed connection. It took about 20 years until someone discovered that this was fraudulent work. 
that you know the data just were essentially made up. Uh, and by that time, we had epidemics of measles that we hadn't had for decades. You know, so no peer-reviewed research is is not set in stone. We have to realize that, and that's why we always look at the broad picture. We don't look at only one paper. You look at everything that is out there and try to to uh, filter out the important pieces of work from the mythical ones, the the you know mistake laden ones, the fraudulent laden ones, because unfortunately those are there. But if you if you look broadly enough, there will be a consensus that emerges. You know, uh, it won't be expected accepted by everyone. I mean, you know, we look at something like climate change, which one would think is as well documented as as anything can be documented, and yet, of course, we still have people who say that no, this is not uh, not the case, and that. Uh, you know, it's just a random variation in, in climate and, you know, the, we don't have to go crazy worrying about carbon dioxide. And, you know, there, there are some legitimate scientists who, who claim that. But 97% of all climate scientists who work in this area totally agree that humans are involved. We're putting out a lot of carbon dioxide. It is potentially catastrophic and that we need to do something about it. So there will be naysayers always about every issue, but you know when you have 97% versus 3%, you believe the 97%. Yeah, you raise an excellent point. The peer review process, it's not immune to its errors. And I think as scientists, uh, we always need to question the source and methodologies and papers we read. It's there that I think meta-analyses are like a vital tool uh, for evaluating the outcome of a particular topic. But thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Schwartz. Uh, this is all the time we have for this episode, but we will be continuing this discussion about scientific misinformation in a second episode. So to our listeners out there, stay tuned for that. For now, thank you again for listening and thank you to Dr. Schwartz for such a fascinating interview. To listen to the next episode and all our latest interviews, be sure to find us on global podcast platforms.